0: Good morning, church. How many of you want to grow in your spiritual life? Good. I'm glad you're here. How many of you want to be more like Jesus? I, I hope so. Well, I've got some bad news for you, though. This morning, our Bible passage gives us two of the most painful ways possible to grow spiritually. Two of the most difficult, painful ways to be more like Christ. Doesn't that sound like fun? I mean, why take the easy road when there's a hard road in front of us? But that's what we're going to look at today. Oftentimes when we think about how to grow more like Christ, how to to be more spiritual, how to grow in depth in our salvation, we think of the typical Sunday school answers. You read the Bible, you pray, and you go to church. Three Sunday school answers. All of those things are good for your spiritual health. They are Sunday school answers for a reason. But there are a couple of other stimulants to our Christian growth that are often overlooked. And we've been touching on some of them as we've gone through First Peter, but I think they're going to kind of come together for us today. I want to give you a brief heads up as well, parents especially that are in the room. Uh, this is what I call a PG-13 sermon. Or at least there are PG-13 elements in the sermon. We do offer great kids ministries up through 6th grade. And I would encourage you to take advantage of them uh, if you can and if you are able to this morning. If not, I'm not saying anything that's outside the text. I'm not going into any great detail. This is not a a health class. Uh, But I am going to touch on some things in the text that are a little bit more mature. So I want to give you that heads up too. If you need a Bible, we have some Bibles for you. We're going to be in 1 Peter, starting chapter 4 today. And just slip your hand up. We're happy to give you a Bible. This is our gift to you if you need one. We've been studying through the book of 1 Peter, and we are coming down to the end, the last few chapters of this great text. Peter has said a lot so far. He's covered topics such as marriage and government and apologetics and whatever in the world Pastor Austin talked about last week. A lot of things... Peter is covered. I mean, that was a tough text last week, wasn't it? Austin did a great job covering it, really digging deep into those details and, and helping us to see how it was rooted in the message of 1 Peter. But happily for us, there's a lot to review, but in the first verse, Peter tells us all that we need to know in order to pay attention to what he's going to do with his argument going forward. So look at 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start right in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. What we're going to see today is that there is one primary command in this passage, just one command. And everything else develops from that one command. And the command is, arm yourselves. We see it right there in verse 1. Arm yourselves. Take up arms. Now before you run out of church and start buying guns, let me help explain the context and meaning of this metaphor. Uh, Peter begins with the word, therefore. Remember, when we're studying the Bible, a great tip for studying the Bible is any time you see the word therefore, stop and ask, what is the therefore therefore? In other words, what is it connecting us to? What is he trying to remind us of? Uh, Peter is bringing together his argument. For three chapters, he has been preaching to a, a group of persecuted Christians. They're scattered throughout the ancient world. Roman Emperor Nero has been persecuting them unto death And Peter calls them elect exiles. You are chosen by God, and yet you are spiritual foreigners scattered throughout this world. And at the end of chapter 3, he has this really kind of confusing and yet challenging argument with a very simple point. Jesus suffered when he died on the cross for our sins. But in his resurrection, that suffering and that resurrection provided salvation for us believers. Not only salvation, but the exaltation of Christ empowers Christians with endurance. So Peter collects all those thoughts together with this hearty, therefore. And he reminds us of the most important part that we need to know for today. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. So whatever he's about to say in this passage, it all hinges on the suffering of Jesus Christ. The suffering of Christ is going to motivate this command and inspire his thoughts. Look at how Peter connects his command to Christ's sufferings. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. We're going to see this is not one of the easier commands in Scripture to follow. Arm yourselves. Uh, we're not talking about the Second Amendment here. This has nothing to do with physically arming yourselves, although Peter is using military terminology. Take up arms, like a soldier gathering his battle gear, putting his shield on to protect himself, putting his helmet on to, to protect his head, grabbing his spear or his sword. We arm ourselves not physically as Christians, but spiritually as Christians. We arm ourselves Spiritually, with the same purpose as the suffering Messiah. You could translate that the same way of thinking or the same intent. Your thinking, your purpose, is the same way as Jesus' thinking as it relates to His suffering. Jesus realized that His suffering on the cross and His suffering leading up to the cross was necessary to accomplish God's purposes for the world. Without suffering... There is no salvation. Without the suffering of Christ, you and I would have no hope for salvation. We recognize that there is a necessity to suffering. That kind of thinking transcends this earthly life, doesn't it? When you think about suffering in that way, you're thinking like a Christian and not like a pagan. Pagans tend to run from suffering. They don't understand it. They hate it. They want to avoid it at all costs. They pay great money to to make suffering go away. But Christians realize that suffering has a purpose. We are not living for our comfort in this earthly life. We are living for greater purposes than that. That's what that motivates missionaries to, to give up a, a life of relative ease and go serve in foreign countries, taking the gospel at risk of their own lives to people who desperately need it. The other day I was reflecting and reading a little bit on uh, one of the great first American missionaries, Adoniram Judson. Judson was an American missionary who spent nearly 40 years ministering in Burma. And while he was there, he lost three of his children to illness, spent 19 months in prison. After he was released, his wife died. And then shortly after that, just a couple months later, his two-year-old died. This was a man who knew suffering, and yet he endured. He remained. Why? Because his mind was set on Christ. His hope extended beyond this life, and he knew that suffering produced great results for the Lord. Peter says, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Now, Peter here is no longer talking specifically about Jesus. He's talking about believers. I mean, yes, Jesus... Uh, isn't tempted by sin anymore. His suffering produced a deliverance from temptation. But Peter applies this to Christians. What does this mean for us? He's not saying that if we suffer, we'll never sin, or if we suffer, we'll never be tempted. What he is saying is that people who suffer, their priorities change. Their outlook on life changes. You are done with sin. Not that you'll never sin anymore, but mentally, you've given it up. You have replaced it with something greater. Peter says, he who suffers has ceased from sin. That word ceased can have the sense of being through with something. It is not a draw for you anymore. Your life is no longer characterized by the temptations of this world. You are done with sin In that sense, you are living for something greater than just what this earthly life offers you. What Peter is saying is that suffering sanctifies. Suffering sanctifies. Suffering has such an effect on a believer's life that it untethers you from the normal pleasures and the normal goals and the normal obsessions of this world and helps you to realize what you are made of as a Christian. Suffering sanctifies. That means to make more holy, to be more like Christ. You suffer. I may have used this analogy before, but I think it bears repeating here. I used to to be a competitive swimmer in high school. The swim meets, the competitions, are the easy part about swimming. If you've ever swum competitively, you know this. That's the easy part. Competition is fun and easy. It's the practice that's hard. That's where the suffering takes place. Swim practice is suffering. There's nothing fun about it hours and hours of of punishment on your body lap after lap every muscle in your body working and it was always interesting to see the first week of swim practice every year who would make the cut not who would make the team but who would just just make it through that week really that first week would separate those who were really committed competitive swimmers to those who only thought that they were committed that suffering in the pool would reveal your character some people endured it. Their eyes would be fixed on the goal of getting on the team. They would sometimes get out of the pool, they'd vomit a few times, they'd grab a drink of water, and they'd get right back in and keep going. And some people ran from that suffering. They very quickly realized, this is not for me, I can't endure this, this is not worth it. Few laps, they're out of breath, and instead of pushing through, they tap out. The suffering reveals their character, and the suffering builds character suffering sanctifies it reveals the character of a christian and it fortifies your bond to christ it develops a holiness in you that you did not have before it untethers you from the ways of this world and bonds you more tightly with christ when you suffer you either flee from christianity or you become aware of what christianity is really about now we've seen all of this so far in first peter This is nothing new if you've been following along in this sermon series. But Peter's use of suffering is especially focused on suffering through persecution. But we also know this principle extends more widely and can apply more broadly for believers. In the letter of James, James writes that all kinds of trials produce endurance and sanctification in a believer. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans writes that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces uh, character and character produces godly hope. So although Peter is focused on suffering due to persecution, we realize that any suffering ultimately produces sanctification in a believer. Suffering sanctifies. Do you want to grow in your life as a Christian? Suffer. What a pleasant message. Suffering sanctifies. But it gets better. Peter goes on to say this in verse 3. He says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter says that in the past, you believers lived like Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews, people who are not Jewish in their faith. Oftentimes in the New Testament letters like this one, it uses Gentiles as kind of a synonym for unbelievers, people who don't know Christ yet as their Savior. So he's saying they they used to live like Gentiles. You used to live like unbelievers. You had sufficient time to live like that. And Peter then lists six different sins that characterize unbelievers. Sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. This is the PG-13 part of the sermon. I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to preach on this list during VBS Family Week. It was a relief to step outside of this. I think most of these sins are, are pretty self-evident. I don't know that I need to uh, detail them for you. You know what lust is. You know what drunkenness looks like. Sensuality means that you live to please your senses. You, you kind of do whatever feels good. You do whatever you want to do. It's, it's a form of hedonism. Carousing is a word that refers to wild sex parties. One version even translates it, Orgies. Again, I'm not trying to get too graphic here, but I want to preach the text. Peter does not sugarcoat this. Peter does not give this to us in PG language, so I'm not going to either. Abominable idolatries, he says, characterizes unbelievers. Oftentimes in in Peter's day, worshiping idols was associated with other kinds of sins. A lot of these other sins, like carousing and drinking parties, and, and even those orgies became associated with idol worship. People went to the pagan temples and they didn't just sing a couple hymns and read a little bit of scripture. They participated in these sinful acts as they worshiped idols. And Peter says these are the sins that describe unbelievers. Now church, we have to be careful because we don't want to read a list like this and think those people are so evil, aren't they? Those people back then. What we ought to do is read a list like this and look at our culture and realize we are not too far from this at all, are we? This is not too far from how our culture behaves. I'll tell you a story. When we first moved to Michigan back in 2016, we had just two kids at the time, and we took our family, we were kinda trying to, you know, look at the area, see what was around us, and we were real close to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and there's a really cool bookstore in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a used bookstore. Used bookstores are some of my favorite places in the whole world. And I wanted to take my kids there, you know, give them a little education. Go grab a book, I'll buy anything, and you get to read it a fun day with the family like that. We thought it would be an educational time for the family. What we didn't realize, being new to Michigan, was that it was a Michigan football game day. And in case you didn't know, college football is a big deal in Michigan. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey where where Rutgers football was what you had to root for. Uh, So if you know anything about Rutgers, you might understand why college football isn't as big as uh, football in New Jersey as it is in Michigan. But anyway, we get to this bookstore, we're going to this bookstore in Ann Arbor, and we had to drive right past the Michigan football stadium. They call that the big house. And all along the stretch of road, they have these houses and apartments that they rent out to the college students. And, and we were crawling through this traffic. I mean, we were five miles per hour at best most of the time. And behind every sidewalk on the way to this bookstore, we saw partying college students. Some were dressed in revealing outfits. Others were cre- clearly drinking, reveling in their intoxication. We heard many words that are not appropriate to repeat in the Morawski family. The drive to that bookstore ended up educating my children more than I anticipated. Now, many of you went to college. Maybe you've experienced what I'm describing here. For those parents who are ready to send their kids to college, it might be one reason to consider a Christian university. I could recommend a good one for you if you need it. But this is not too far from what Peter is describing here. It's not just the colleges, obviously, that behave like this. You go to a bar, you see the same kind of thing. Some holiday parties and your family gatherings can get just as bad as what Peter's describing. There was one time I did a wedding. I remember I spent a couple weeks with the couple like I normally do leading up to this wedding in premarital counseling. Made sure the ceremony would be God honoring, the gospel would be kind of infused in, in what's going on in the ceremony. What I didn't do though is I didn't ask about the reception right after the the best man and the maid of honor speeches the groom stood up he chugged a a white claw to the cheers of the crowd and just downed it in like 12 seconds and then they said pastor brian is now going to come and lead us in a word of prayer i'm like how do i follow this Uh, and and things got worse from there it happens everywhere not just 2,000 years ago in peter's time but in our day today but there should be a difference between the way christians behave and the way that non-Christians behave. There should be a difference between the way you used to behave and the way that you behave today as a believer. We should not be a part of what the world celebrates. Peter says in verse 4 that in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. Dissipation, that's an interesting word there. Uh, The Greek root of that word has the same root as the word for salvation soteriology comes from this word here the, the word is asotia against salvation or literally unsavedness the unbelievers run into excesses of unsavedness is how peter words this they act like they're not saved in other words I like how the ESV translates this part. It captures a metaphor that Peter uses. He says they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Peter calls it a flood of unsavedness, a flood of debauchery, a flood of dissipation. And those who are unsaved are running into this flood. Now, pro tip, if there's a flood coming, which way do you run normally? You run away from it. And by the way, I'm not meaning to be insensitive with this analogy. I wrote this sermon about two weeks ago before the events of this uh, past week happened. But this is the analogy that Peter's using for a reason. My family and I, we went to the beach a couple weeks ago and I was talking to Nathan, my uh, my nine-year-old, and somehow as we were standing there, the conversation landed on tidal waves, tsunamis. How do you know a tidal wave is coming if you're at the ocean? Usually the water recedes. The tide just keeps going out and out and out. And you know that there's a flood that's coming in very soon. Well, which way do you run? You run away from it, you get as far away as possible. Nobody runs into a tidal wave when it's coming. But that's the analogy that Peter's giving here. That's the analogy he's giving. Unbelievers run towards floods of unsavedness, they run towards the floods of sin. I don't need to give you examples from our culture to illustrate this. I don't want to draw attention or glorify ways that that people sin. It's sufficient to say that when a new method of sin hits the market, sinners flood towards it. Sin is marketable. Sin attracts. And unbelievers are so wrapped up in this lifestyle of sin that they can't figure out why do you as a believer not participate in this? That's what Peter means in verse 4. They are surprised that you don't run into that same flood of sin that they are running into. They're so surprised that they malign you. They make fun of you for not participating in it. Maybe you've experienced this form of suffering. Many years ago, when Janice and I, my wife, were dating, we felt this kind of pressure. Janice and I started dating in high school. We're high school sweethearts. and We dated for four years before we were married. We started dating in high school, we got married right after college, right after I graduated. We did not move in with each other until after we got married. And we did not have sex with each other until after we got married. Now, I'm not not trying to be crude, I'm not trying to be overly personal. By the way, whenever I give an illustration like this, I only do so with my wife's knowledge and permission. But this fits with Peter's example. Janice and I were saved at a young age, and we saved sex for marriage. We saved living together for marriage. Why? Well, Hebrews 13 verse four says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The Bible tells us that first comes marriage between a biological man and a biological woman, and then you live together and enjoy the benefits of marriage. Now that decision of ours brought ridicule from many people. I remember one family party I was at, I think it was actually our engagement party, one of my cousins who is not a believer, who was on I think his second marriage at that time, he and I had this conversation about me choosing to wait for marriage for these things. Oh, but Brian, he said, you need to move in together before you're married. I mean, how else are you gonna know if you're compatible with this woman? How else are you gonna know if you really fit with her, if, if, if you're gonna be able to stay with her forever? And, and at my engagement party, he openly ridiculed the idea that we were doing this in a biblical way. When I was a youth pastor in New Jersey, I used to volunteer with our local Christian pregnancy center. And I was trained uh, with, th- with them to-, to go into public high schools and middle schools and give presentations on abstinence. You know, you know what ridicule is like? You wanna know ridicule? Take a day and speak to freshmen in a public high school about how great abstinence is and you will know ridicule. When the Pregnancy Center unfortunately cut that part of its ministry, um, I had built up enough relationships with the health teachers that they continued to ask me to come in and just do this solo. Will you just come in and, and present this ministry to the kids? So here I am, a youth pastor, talking to freshmen in a secular public high school about why I chose to wait for marriage. Now, I don't share that to say I was the paragon of virtue (laughs) or that my marriage is perfect or that I did everything perfectly before my marriage. But I do have a good marriage, I think, by God's grace. I have a wife that not only do I love her, I like her, and I'm really grateful for her. But I say this to illustrate that when we abstain from the things that this world revels in, people will malign you, you will suffer, you will know what it's like to be ridiculed. Abstaining from alcohol on a college campus will incur great ridicule from your peers. Abstaining from sex before marriage brings plenty of mockery, sometimes even from your own family members. Abstaining from the after-work party at the bar may bring actual persecution to you in your life. Do you see the connection, though, between arming yourselves for suffering and abstaining from sin? There's a clear connection here in the text we already saw that suffering sanctifies. We've seen that all over this letter of Peter's. But what Peter's teaching us here is one step further. Abstaining from sin leads to suffering. Abstaining from sin leads to suffering. If, if we could chart this out, maybe put these connections in a graph, I, I kind of like to, to visual, visualize things a lot of times. It helps me to learn. But if we could graph this, it might look a little something like this. Abstaining from sin leads to suffering, which leads to sanctification, your spiritual growth. Why should we single ourselves out for ridicule by abstaining from sin? Well, because ultimately that's going to lead to our sanctification. It's going to help us decide, do I love sin more or do I love Jesus more? Which do I love more, really? And it's going to help us bond with Christ through the pain of our persecution. And ultimately, that grows you spiritually as a Christian. Now, the other benefit of abstaining from sin is given in verse 5. Let me read verse 5 again. Peter says, But they, the unbelievers, will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. People who don't abstain from sin, unbelievers, Peter says, will be judged by the Lord. They will have to give an account for their lives... And I'm positive that that will not be a very pleasant experience for them. Think about how uncomfortable and how awkward and how embarrassing it is when you are caught in sin by someone today in this world. You ever go through that experience, someone catches you in sin? That's that's uncomfortable, isn't it? Maybe you were caught by a parent at one time, or a teacher, or a police officer, or worse yet, a pastor. As shameful as that experience can be, imagine being caught by the God of this universe. God, the holy and righteous God, knows everything you've ever done, thought, or even desired. So Peter warns his readers, don't act like unbelievers. Don't be like you used to be. Abstain from sin, even if it leads to suffering, because suffering leads to sanctification. Now, before we close out, I have one more verse to preach, and this one could be very easily misunderstood, so let's make sure we read it and hear it in context. Look at verse 6. Peter says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And what does it mean that the gospel has been preached even to those who are dead? There are some religions out there and even some denominations of Christianity that misuse this verse to mean that the people who are dead and in hell have a second chance to hear the gospel. In fact, many people connect this back to chapter 3, verse 19, and they say that after Jesus died, he descended into hell, and he preached the gospel, and he gave all unbelievers a second chance. Now, as we saw last week in Pastor Austin's sermon, that's not the best interpretation of 1 Peter 3 for many reasons, nor is it the best interpretation of this verse. Because the Bible is clear. You have this life and this life only to accept the gospel. That's that's what the Lord has given you. Once you die, your eternal fate is sealed. People do not get a second chance to accept the gospel once they're in hell. Once saved, always saved, and once condemned, always condemned. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die but once, and after that comes judgment. There's a lot of other passages we could refer to. After church, maybe you want to look up Luke chapter 16. That's that story of the rich man and Lazarus. They both die, and it's very clear from that story that there is no return from hell. This is why, by the way, it's so important to accept Christ today take seriously your spiritual fate right now don't hold off on giving your life to christ it's not something you should kick down the road because you don't know how much road you have to kick down we don't know when the lord will take us we are not promised tomorrow today is the day of salvation So take time today, pray, ask Christ to change your life, commit yourself to him. I'd be happy to stay after and pray with you. I know our leaders would do the same if you're confused about that or uncertain of your salvation. But back to 1 Peter 4, 6, I'm gonna cross off the idea that Peter's talking about people hearing the gospel and getting a second chance in hell. Doesn't fit with the best interpretation of chapters three or four here, doesn't fit with the context of the rest of scripture. Now, some people, what they do is they spiritualize this verse. The gospel was preached to those who are spiritually dead. Now, that's certainly a true theological thought. But I would say it's the right doctrine from the wrong text. I don't think that's what Peter's getting at here. In verse 5, he left off talking about God judging the living and the dead. And the dead there are clearly those who are physically dead. Starting in verse 6, he starts with the word for, which indicates he continues that thought. So even though it's true that the gospel is preached to those who are spiritually dead in their sins, I don't think that's exactly what Peter's aiming at here. So what is he saying? I think the best way to understand this is to simply say that Peter means the gospel was preached to people when they were alive, but since then they have died. I can rightly say the gospel was preached to my grandmother, who is dead. It wasn't preached to her after she was dead. It was preached to her while she was living, but now she is dead. The gospel was preached to my grandmother, who is dead. And I think that's similar to what Peter means in verse 6 here. The gospel was preached to those who were living, but now have passed on. I like how the net translation, that's another translation of the Bible, translates this. We'll put that up on the screen for you. It says, now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. You see how that works? Well, what's Peter's point? His point is, those who accepted the gospel, they are alive forever with God right now. Even though the world maligned them for being Christians, even though they abstained from sin and that led to suffering, even suffering unto death, now they are enjoying eternity with God forever and ever. God is the ultimate judge, not your coworker, not your enemy, not this world. God is the ultimate judge. And that's who we have to be concerned with, not anyone else. And that's the point. Peter's giving one last motivation for you to abstain from sin. Abstaining from sin leads to suffering, which leads to sanctification. But abstaining from sin is also the true mark of a believer. And although true believers might get mocked on this side of eternity, when they get to heaven, they reap eternal rewards for the way they've committed their life to Christ. So arm yourselves to suffer while abstaining from sin. Bringing all this together, arm yourselves to suffer while abstaining from sin. That's Peter's message. When we live like Christians, we will encounter suffering suffering from everyday trials and suffering from persecution. You are set apart from this world and you are set apart unto God. Don't expect this world to love you, they will not. Expect opposition, expect difficulties. The path of a Christian is not an easy path, but church, it is worth it. It is so worth it. You might be sacrificing some comfort in this life, but that sacrifice produces godliness. It sanctifies, it produces great reward in heaven. God, the ultimate judge, takes notice. Perhaps unbelievers think that they're getting away with something in this life, they think that you're missing out because of Whatever you're abstaining from, you're not partying like they are. They think you're missing out. But in the end, they will be missing out, tragically, for all eternity. So abstain from sin. Arm yourselves to suffer. I mean, these thoughts should sober our minds and break our hearts. It should cause us to want to share Jesus Christ with those who don't know him. Though we are giving up earthly comforts, they are giving up eternal comforts which should cause us and motivate us to go out and share this beautiful love of Christ with them. Jesus once said in Matthew chapter 16, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Now what Peter does is he kind of flips that around a little bit and sees the other side of it. What's the profit for a believer if he misses out on a few things in this world only to thrive in eternity? It's great profit indeed. So Christian, when you abstain from sin, you are not missing out on anything. Not really. What God has stored up for you one day is beyond anything that you have given up in this life. Proverbs 24 verse 20 says it like this. For there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Now that's one side of it. But to look at the other side of it the opposite thought from proverbs 23 the author says do not let your heart envy sinners but live in the fear of the lord always surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off this is the great assurance that we have as christians don't envy them don't envy sinners know that they won't have a future but we will share the gospel with them that they might come into eternity with you, but abstain from sin and arm yourselves to suffer as you do so. Let me pray in that regard. God, I ask that you would put your hand upon this church, that you would arm them to suffer for you. Give them the courage and the boldness the fortitude to abstain from sin, even while everyone around them is reveling in that sin, even while others are flooding or rushing towards the flood of debauchery, Lord, I pray that they would act like believers, that they would walk away from that sin, and as a result, Lord, that they would be sanctified. I pray that that sanctification, that holiness would result in a greater eagerness to share the gospel with those who don't know it, that many people would come to Christ because they see the difference in our lives. Lord, help us to help them to think eternally. And I pray that we would be willing to give up those earthly comforts for the heavenly rewards that you have stored up for us. Thank you, Lord, for the promises of this text. We pray that you would work these things through our heart today, that we might live changed people as we go from here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here today. I pray that you would suffer well this week.